0: Precision medicine, is it hype or help, fact or fiction? Welcome to Precision Insight. This is a podcast series where the most influential thought leaders and innovators in healthcare sit with me to chat about the latest technologies and tools of precision medicine. If you want to know more about this incredibly fast-moving field of research and development, stay tuned. So, Dr. Danny Sands, thank you very much for your time and for uh, sharing uh, with us today some of your thoughts and ideas uh, about the future of medicine and, and where you've come from. You're a family physician with a strong background in, in information technology, but not just that. I mean, you have other interests as well. So um, one of the things I'd like to ask is, is how you bridge the gap between the patient and the physician.
1: Well, that's a very broad question. Of course, um, I, I think that, that uh, it's almost not fair. I could talk for a half an hour about that. Um, I think that the uh, the gap that we're going to that we're going to mine the gap is uh, is multiple. I mean, there are uh, cultural issues, there are knowledge issues, uh, the communications issues. There are just so many different it the gap. Um, however, I would say that, that whatever gaps exist, the way those are bridged are, um, are in the exam room and out of the exam room, I would broadly say. Um, in fact, I would say that yet another gap is a temporal gap because we only see patients in our offices every so often. And in fact, that means that there's a, the vast majority of their lives, they're not in the office. So we have to uh, ideally manage their health outside the office as well along with them. So um, so I think, you know, in the office, clearly it's the way we interact with patients, it's how we use technology in the office with patients, um, and I can talk a lot about that, um, and, and out of the office, it is how we communicate with the patients outside the office, how we gather
0: information from patients outside the office, and, and oftentimes these are uh, through leveraging technology. So in terms of communication, do you use email traditionally uh, or now between your patients and yourself? And do you think that's a good idea? You know, um, I I don't know if this was a planted question. Um, I I actually was
1: one of the earliest pioneers of using email with patients. So actually, yes, I do think it's a good idea. Um, I was using email with patients back in the early 90s. And in 1998, I co-authored the very first guidelines about how to use email with patients. I talked so much about uh, email uh, w- with patients that I, uh, I, I showed a cartoon. People accused me of being the email doctor, and, uh, and I, have, I had a cartoon that I showed in my presentations that said uh, it's a patient walking up to the receptionist at the doctor's office, and uh, she says to the patient, sorry, Dr. Sands no longer sees patients, he emails them. <laughs> But, uh, but no, I actually believe that, 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 that real human connection is important. I think that email is a useful tool that allows us to communicate, uh, that allows us to break down barriers of time and distance, which makes it very, very useful. And the time is especially important because one of the hard parts of uh, connecting with people and having enough time to connect with people is that we're time pressured. Mm-hmm. You know, your time... The patient's time is valuable, the doctor's time is valuable, we're sitting in an office, the office time is valuable, um, and that time is very precious. It's hard to take care of everything in that time, number one. Number two, it's very difficult for patients to communicate adequately in the available time, and they feel time pressured and often tongue-tied because of that. So what email allows one to do is, uh, is, first of all, not limit things to the visit. It allows us to do connections over time with patients as things arise, which maintains the relationship. It's a channel for care delivery because we can offer advice and tell patients whether they need a visit for that or just help them out. And, and, and it also uh, allows patients to take their time to express their ideas, their, their, their concerns. Uh, and likewise, when, uh, when they're reading the responses that I give, um, they can take their time reading it. You know, if we're in the office or we're on the phone, I say things and they just go into the ether. And, and we know from many studies that patients remember, you know, a third of what they hear. So, um, so that's a, uh, a lot, but it's not all I could talk about email with patients. So yes, I do believe it's important.
0: Yeah, I think it's good background for listeners to hear uh, about that because, I mean, I'm also passionate about sharing information with patients and recognizing that the limited 10 minutes or 15 minutes is not enough. And as you've said, people forget emotional stuff happens during consultations and, and stuff goes out of the uh, the brain and, and we forget stuff. So I think the, the additional support of email and other things uh, is critical to that shared decision making that we need to move towards if we're going to be successful in the care of patients i mean i I, and part of this is is, comes about because of the increased amount of information uh because we've got much much more information now about our patients um and the more diseases they have the more drugs the more information is needed are there any solutions that you see out there coming for dealing with that information overload, other than the email?
1: Yeah, well, it depends on what you mean by the information
0: overload. There is a lot, increasing
1: amounts of information. And and I would put it into several buckets, though. So one is the burgeoning amount of of medical facts that are out there. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the great Don Lindbergh, who I'm friends with, who used to be the head of the US National Library of Medicine, uh, famously wrote years ago, and maybe you heard this, that if a um, If a physician spent, you know, I don't know, a couple hours each night and and kept up with a handful of journals uh, diligently over the course of the year, by the end of that year, they would be several centuries behind in their reading. And of course, you know, understanding what's good information, what's bad information, that's important. There is really uh, so much to know. And of course, you know, half of what we teach our students today or... Put another way, half of what you and I learned when we were in medical school, you know, ultimately is found to be untrue. It's found to be false. Yes. So the problem is, of course, we don't know which half that is, so we've got to learn it all. And so now, you know, we have um, so I I went to medical school at sort of the leading edge, the beginning of sort of immunology. Hmm. And, and that as a, as a medical science. And I remember my textbook of immunology. I mean, there was some basic immunology, but immunology is something that really doctors needed to study. It was not just a laboratory issue. And, um, and today, we have a huge number of biologic agents, right, that are used to treat all kinds of conditions. Yes. Um, and, and these didn't exist back then right and and these are things that i would have to learn about i'd have to learn a whole bunch about immunology that i don't know today to understand all of these different pathways and and likewise it's it's true for things like uh, genomics right genomic revolution didn't really exist uh when, when i was in medical school certainly so there's that part of information which is managing that kind of information overload and that is a continuing struggle those of us who, you know, when we go into medicine, we need to be people who want to learn for our whole lives. Yeah. Continuous lifelong learning, right? But um, from a pa- then from a patient's perspective, of course, it's also bewildering. Um, they have, you know, one or two or three or a handful of diseases, and they might want to know everything there is to know about that, but that's hard to know as well. And there's so much, so many different types of information sources out there. Um, and. So for patients, they need to know where to get useful information, whether this information is useful, uh, you know, and, and these sorts of things. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, you know, we continually have new medications that we've got to learn. Patients have to learn what they're all about, and we have to learn what they're all about. And I think that's complicated. And then, just to make things even more difficult, we have more types of measurements than ever before. <laughs> if you look at the types of laboratory testing that we're doing, imaging studies that we're doing, uh, new things that are coming up uh, you know, all the time, right? I mean, yeah. um, when, when I was in medical school, we, there was no such thing as a PET scan, right? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I suppose a cat has a kind of pet, and you could put a cat in the scanner. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's what they mean by that. So we've learned, we have to learn about all these new modalities, all the new testings, and then to make things even more complicated, patients are generating their own data, yes. right? They're either doing their own testing at home, uh, they're, they're gathering data on themselves, you know, blood pressure, wearables, of weight, wearable devices, and so on, and that's barraging us with more information as well, and we don't have a good way of dealing with patient-generated data. And then on top of that, patients are then also going and getting their genomes done. They're <laughs> going to 23 Me, right? Yeah. And they're saying, hey, doctor, I just found out I have this gene. What do you do with that? Yeah. So all of these things pose individual challenges along the way. And and there aren't any great ways to deal with this, but I am encouraged, at least in some of the ways, I think that, first of all, we have better ways of of searching the medical literature than ever before. We have more powerful computers and and technologies that are with us wherever we go, which is just fantastic because you and I can look up the world's medical literature and all the best information right in our little device, which is great. Patients, likewise, have access to this information. And I think that's uh, also a very important piece. And they have tools, apps and things, oh, yeah. that allow them to manage
0: their information, their health information. But how do they trust the information? I know we've had this HON sort of tag for websites, um, health network, or and, and, but how how do we know that the information the patients are getting is reliable, whether it's about pharmacogenetics, immunology, or vaccinations. Um, And how how do we address that problem? Well, to be honest with you, that's not a problem that's ever going to be fully addressed
1: because there will always be uh, patients who go wherever they want and they will believe things even though that they're not well vetted and, and so on. We can't, you know, cover all cases. But yep. what, can, what can we do? Well, you know, first of all, I think that it's incumbent upon healthcare professionals to ask our patients where they're getting their health information. Right. So I recommend, and I do this in my own I practice what I preach, honestly, that when I do an annual review with patients, a checkup, an annual, whatever you want, a preventive health visit, and I'm going through the section where I'm asking them about their lifestyle, their social history, right? So it's, you know, how much do you smoke, how much you drink, do you use any drugs, sexual history, and so on. I also ask every single patient, where do you get your health information? Specifically, I say, do you go online to get health information? Have you ever? And then I ask them what websites they have found useful. And I do that because, A, we know from studies, specifically the Markle Foundation has done studies, surveys, at least in the U.S., showing that, First of all, the vast majority of online adults have gone online to look for health information. Secondly, over half of them change their behavior as a result of what they find online. Wow. So that's really important. That's, that means that if they're doing this secretly, if, they're, if I'm going to prescribe a drug or recommend a treatment of some sort, and the patient's then going to go online and find out not to take it or that there are problems with it, they may yep. not want to share that with me. Right. So, I wanna know where they're getting their health information. So I ask them for that reason, because I really wanna know how they're making decisions. But also, by asking them every year, it's giving them tacit approval yes. to tell me about these things and not go underground. And that leads to honest disclosures. Yes. Do and I learn
0: from them too. Do you ever suggest to them uh, sites to go to, like uh, AAFP, resources for patients? So, um, so I, uh,
1: the, the other thing that we can do is, we can prescribe websites and apps to our patients. And I think that's a powerful thing because, you know, for a lot of patients, they want more information than we can talk about in the office. And, uh, you know, if there are sites that I trust, um, and just to correct you, I'm not a family physician, I'm actually an internist. So, but I do like the AFP site. I just didn't want my family physician colleagues to say, no, he doesn't take care of kids. <laughs> But at any rate, um, I do like the AF- AAFP, they have some great sites, and there are a number of sites that I keep in mind that I give to patients. I say, this is a good site for this, this is a good site for that, and, and for many patients, that's fine. That's all they need. They need some additional reading material. Now, yeah. some patients are going to continuously push the boundaries and look for more and more, even going you know deep in, in Reddit forums and all kinds of stuff, and they might find some interesting things that may be a little bit unusual. Um, but 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 if if I'm taking care of many patients, need by saying, look, here's some site that you might find useful. I think that's great. Yeah. Now, just a comment. I think that that my opinion in my teaching, there are three things that, that three types of information that patients need to be engaged in their healthcare. Type one information is the kind of information we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Give me some information about my disease, my diabetes, for example. What is it? Yes. Okay, type two information is information about my disease. Information about my diabetes. When was my last uh, uh, retinal examination? What's my hemoglobin A1C? Uh, You know, where am I in my disease? That's my medical record information. Yep. Type three is complementary to those two, which is information from others who have this disease or have had this disease, understanding their knowledge and experience. And that's useful too, and I
0: prescribe uh, online support communities to my patients too. Well, I worked in Oxford where we actually, uh, another group, but I learned about it, set up the Database of Individual Patient Experiences, which is similar to what you're talking about, where patients like me are choosing whether to have an operation or medical therapy and they can review videos, structured videos, from patients who've gone through either of the processes yeah. and what they felt before, uh, immediately after the procedure, and then down the road. And it's fascinating when you do that. You know, Patients are quite emotional about doing one thing or another at the time, but further down the road, not so much. Um, yeah. so I think you're absolutely right. Those three types of information are, are critical. Um, and it's going to be ever so more when we get more information. You mentioned the whole genome sequencing. Um, I'm not sure that's, well, I have a question for you. When do you think everyone's going to get a whole genome sequenced? Uh,
1: you mean as sort of part of standard care? Yep, absolutely. Whole genome? Whole genome. Hmm. Yeah, I think I'm going
0: to guess eight years from now. Eight years. Okay. We're going to go back to everyone I asked this question. And <laughs> <laughs> You're going to track them down, huh? Give a decent prize to the person who comes closest. But no, I think... I, I, that... actually, I
1: actually think it may be longer than that, to be perfectly yeah. honest with you. Yeah. Um, no, I do think, though, that you didn't ask me about uh, uh, more specific testing. No. I think there will be increasing amounts of more specific Gene testing, such as gene panels for uh, uh, you know cancer risk, which yes. we're already doing, of course, in many centers, yeah. um, and uh, testing for specific uh, uh, drugs. Yes. Um, I, you know, I think you know that's probably going to become increasingly important. You know, now, as you know, outside of oncology and a couple other drugs, there's not a lot of it that's 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 there yet. Yeah. But I think we'll get there, and as the cost of doing the genome sequencing comes down. You know, I think it's still going to be very important to look at what are the benefits and, and you know, what are we getting out of this whole genome sequencing. So I won't even go into all the ethical issues and the privacy issues and the Gattaca kind of scenarios we could imagine in the future.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I, I work with a couple of people as well in the States who focus very much on family history. And um, going back to the three questions, uh, you know, pieces of information, I think family history is still absolutely critical, Um, if you know it. I mean, I know there are situations where people may not know their family history, but if they've they've got a good family history, it can be so valuable in, I mean, we do it already with cardiovascular risk, but, you know, there are many other situations. I, I agree,
1: and that's an important part of, obviously, as you know, of course, we do this as part of our annual review with patients. We go over that.
0: Yeah, um, but in terms of, of disease risk, when you're you've got the genome and you've got family history, you're getting uh, the maximum benefit. If you've got exposures as well, so their lifetime exposure, and that comes back to the data part. Um, you know, I actually need to know what drugs people have taken throughout their life, not just in the last five years. I need yeah. to know their diet, their activity, etc. And it's Creating the platforms that allow me at a glance to see that and see how that information helps me now with the patient in front of me. I think yep. that's one of our challenges.
1: And, and I think that, you know, and since we're talking about this kind of stuff, all the social determinants of health become very important as well. And, and I think that the, the thing that most people don't understand is that so, such a vast you know, amount of our disease is decided upon by our lifestyle choices. Yes. You know, you know, everyone thinks genes are destiny, but you know, largely they're not. There are in some situations, of course, but when you look at the, you know, the burden, of, the global burden of disease, you know, what is it? It's 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 two thirds or more decided by lifestyle issues. You yes. know,
0: it's,
1: it's your environment. It's lifestyle. It's eating. It's smoking. It's alcohol. Whatever.
0: Yeah. And I need a dashboard that for the patient in front of me that tells me, you know, that takes all that into account, that then helps me guide them. And it may be something simple like smoking cessation, but sometimes it's pretty complex and it may have been buried in their childhood sometime and very important. Yeah, and I think that the challenge is, um,
1: the challenge is going to be, let me say, that that's what we need. We need a smart way to integrate all this information and have some machine learning going on in the background and so on. What, What that sort of speaks to is sort of a next generation electronic health record. Right. And, um, you know, today's electronic health records by and large are a, you know, elect, an electronic recapitulation of the paper yep. with enhanced billing tools in the U.S. at least. Um, and, and some clinical decision support, to be sure. Um, and, and I'm not saying that's bad, but we can do so much better. Yes. Um, and, and the question is going to arise well, how are we going to change things so that people are, you know, are our, our doctors going to be willing to spend more money to change the kind of EHR they're using? And this is a whole interesting complicated area that, that we'll have to focus on because today the EHR is the workspace
0: for physicians. Yes. But I think the EHR today is like the Nokia was, and we're waiting for Apple to come along with the new, uh, that we're prepared to pay more for because the functionality is so extraordinarily better than just having bigger buttons on my Nokia phone. So, um, yeah, you know, although it's interesting,
1: consumer in the consumer electronics space, it's a little bit different because I am actually willing to pay for the latest iPhone, maybe if I'm able to. But, you know, <laughs> in medical practices the margins are so slim and and the doctor isn't necessarily getting a benefit from this it's usually sure. other people it's the patient or it's the payer which you know in canada
0: is generally the government and here it's whoever yeah but i think that uh, it's an exciting area it's going to develop um the payment is going to be a critical part of the solution Um, But I want to thank you very much for your time. I think it's uh, uh, really been useful for me hearing your thoughts. Um, I'm going to be starting asking my patients where they get their information. And, you know, that one takeaway from me and many other comments you've made have been very helpful. So thank you very much. My pleasure.